listening to Ding Dong Darkness Time Season 2, Stephen King Boogaloo. I gathered several of my most well-read friends together to discuss many of our favorite works by the master of the macabre himself. If you like what you hear, tell the world. In the meantime, let's talk some scary stories. Oh, and beware the spoilers, folks. They're a doozy. Hello, everybody. The time has come once again to gather round and welcome in the darkness. If this is your first time joining us, we're slowly tunneling our way through only a mere fraction of Stephen King's bibliography, and we've dug deep enough, we should probably think about asking a friend who can get things to procure for us a giant poster to help conceal our progress. Personally, I'd like an Idris Elba or maybe a Timothy Oliphant, but that's just me. (laughs) If it isn't clear enough what I'm talking about, then please sit back and enjoy this discussion as my two co-hosts and I break down what I consider one of the finest works of literature, not only by Stephen King, but by anyone, and the movie that happens to be my favorite of all time, and that's Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, or as the movie is known, The Shawshank Redemption. And by the way, our discussion will be dovetailing between both rather freely the movie and the book. We may even, like last week, start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. Who knows? It's anyone's guess. But with me tonight is the same splendid duo who joined me on last week's discussion of The Body slash Stand By Me, Chris Armstrong and Kate Jenkins. But before we go any further, guys, I just want to ask both of you, who would you ask Red to smuggle into the prison for you? Let me think about that for one second. Take your time. I can always cut out the gaps. <laughs> I'm going to say, other than Idris Elba and Timothy Oliphant, because those are good, good choices. I like a, I like a young Isabella Rossellini. Oh, that would probably be my God. The one with her in the suit, like the man suit. Dear God. That is like, <laughs> she is my icon. I want to be her. Okay. Yeah. I love it. I'm, I'm hanging out in your cell. Okay. <laughs> All right, Chris. Hey, <laughs> I was going to say, if I wanted a, a badass woman, I would choose Lena Olin from like the alias years where she was mommy Bristow. She was, yes. I had, I don't know why I was so like enraptured by her. She just seemed like a very graceful, but like kick-ass person. Uh, but if I have to go by another person, this is really tough. I mean, like, Kate said, you made two great choices. How could you not go wrong with, with Tim or Idris? Oh, shit. I don't know, guys. It's hard, right? <laughs> I put you on the spot. Is it, is it supposed to be a crush? Is that what we're yeah, talking like, about Yeah, like, who here? do you want a big, fat poster of in your prison cell to just you stare at, you know? Look at the poster for a while while you're... Right. This is That's gonna. True. This is a very important, like, think about Andy, that, that shot of him on the floor, like, staring up at Rita Hayworth, like... That's you staring up at. I'll say this. This might be an odd choice, but I'm going to stick to it because it's the first person who came to mind. First off, I'm very bad at answering questions out of the blue. My mind just goes, no knowledge for you. It just locks up (laughs) and it's like everything you think you want to know behind this brick wall. You'll have to tunnel through it much like Andy Dufresne did to get to it. So here's what I have. It's Manny Jacinto from The Good Place. He plays a very goofball character, but uh, I think he's a very refined looking guy and wouldn't mind taking a little little look at him from time to time. I think think, uh, Kelly from Press Play and Scream would really appreciate your answer. She is a big uh, Good Place fan. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She might have that. My second choice was Kristen Bell because I. Oh, also a fantastic choice. 
You know she, what? I'll, we'll be in cells next to each other. I'll have Dax Shepard. How about that? We'll have. Oh, a- yes. <laughs> oh my God. I want Dax Shepard from the movie, uh, the space movie that he did, the Zathura, when he was an astronaut. I had such a crush on him from that movie. Dear God, he was such a cutie. Of course, the joke is if you put Zach Braff and Dax Shepard next to each other, would anyone be able to recognize that it's different <laughs> people? Definitely. <laughs> they apparently still get confused when they're out in public it's hilarious that's funny that is yeah. really funny that's great i have to say there was a commercial with zach braff and um oh who's the guy that he was in with scrubs oh donald Faison. donald Faison, and yeah. like donald Faison looks the same he could locked he in time locked in time that guy yeah, yeah. that's impressive like damn how lucky right how if we could only be that way <laughs> yeah my goodness this I'm so glad we broke the ice with this discussion because I feel like the rest of it is going to be well I don't think it's going to get too dark per se here a little bit it will let's just say the warden of this episode is going to say grab your bible and poster and make your way to yourself <laughs> if only, I can't say I approve of this but exceptions can be made <laughs> So Shawshank Redemption, I, of course, as before with all the other episodes in this season, I like to get the brass tacks out of the way, and then we can kind of just come at this thing. As I said before, we are going to be talking a lot about the book and the movie kind of concurrently, and that's mostly because I feel like the movie probably has the strongest cultural pull or knowledge among most people, and that will explain why the movie bombed in the box office when it was released in 1994 and uh, people hadn't heard of it. They didn't like the title. They didn't know what it was about. So it just showed that people didn't really know about this novella by King. But once it hit DVD the following year, it became a legend. So, so anyway, like the body, uh, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption was published in the 1982 novella collection, different seasons. It's told from the point of view of Red, an inmate at Shawshank State Prison in Maine, who is doing a life stint for murder. Uh, He met a man named Andy Dufresne, who came to Shawshank Prison after being convicted and sentenced to dual life sentences for shooting his wife and her lover to death. And Andy ended up changing the lives of nearly everyone he came in contact with during his decades there. And already the narrative device used in this story should feel pretty familiar. Uh, King has used it several times before where the narrator is an observer telling the story of someone or something mythic in nature. But it's also common to a lot of folk tales and especially Bible stories. And I plan to circle back to that last one in a very big way later in the show. So bear with me here. Meanwhile, Shawshank does something a little different with that device, which is while Red is focused almost entirely on the story of Andy's time behind bars, we eventually come to find that the story isn't exactly about Andy himself. The redemption in the title is referring almost entirely to that of Red, but it's one of those things that you kind of have to think about when it's over because we're so focused on Andy's story and Andy's plight that Red almost feels like a background character or like he's just a voice, but he's so much more than that, which is really the beauty of this story. Now that I've gotten that out of the way, I do want to take a couple seconds to talk about the crime itself that Andy was convicted of and the legal proceedings because 
Well, we're all true crime enthusiasts yes. here. And also one of us has a law degree. It's not Ooh. me or Chris. I was going to say, not me. <laughs> Who's left? Who's I got left? A oh, you know, I feel like I just kind of, sorry, Kate. We, we're just going to take advantage of that fact for a little bit. Is it criminal law, Kate? No, I was a family law lawyer. Although when you're doing a divorce case, every once in a while you run into a little criminal stuff. People get DUIs and restraining violations. So well, I will say Kate is a little more elevated in knowledge than say Chris and I as totally people. We have never set foot in law school. We have no idea. Um, Objection, but... Your Honor. Octavius Corpus. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, Your Honor. I have the body. <laughs> That's Cal- that counsel means. is leading the witness. Doesn't that yeah. mean I actually have the body? Like I have a body in the trunk, or maybe not the same thing. I committed a habeas Do corpus. Do you have a body in the trunk? I wouldn't uh, be shocked if you did. Quite frankly, no. <laughs> you're not the first person who said that to me today. Um, <laughs> if I had a nickel. <laughs> my reputation always precedes me. I will say that as a family law lawyer, I was in court a lot. Like. Three times a week, I would say. And you get really, really comfortable with the rules of evidence. And the rules of evidence between civil and criminal, and families obviously civil and criminal is criminal, um, they're different. The rules of evidence are different. The standard of proof is different. So you're talking about um, preponderance versus uh, beyond the shadow. But evidence is fascinating because it literally is the thing that will make or break a win or lose. Don't think it's the facts. Don't think it's your witnesses. It's the evidence, what you get in, what you keep out and the way it's presented um, in both kinds of in civil and criminal. Right. And how you use whatever evidence you have to kind of build your story and whatever, Mm -hmm. whoever tells the better story wins essentially is what it seems like. Yeah. And in the case of Andy Dufresne, I mean, this to me is what I absolutely love about this story is King builds a murder case that seems very airtight. And and in fact, we have Red saying in his own narration that if he'd been on Andy's jury, he would have voted guilty as well. Because, I mean, you have Andy admitting to buying a gun prior to the murder, you know, a pistol, and he admitted to knowing his wife was having an affair. Yep. He admitted to being blackout drunk the night of the murder and even having followed them back to her lover's house and watching them go in. And then he claims, yeah, he's out there drinking. The circumstances are laid bare. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of true crime people, podcasters and lawyers and whatnot will say circumstantial evidence is often your backbone of your case. It's a lot of people say, oh, DNA, oh, yada, yada, yada. No, uh, it's really circumstantial evidence is not this flimsy thing that a lot of people think it is, right? It isn't. Such a strong... Right. And so he claims to have thrown the gun in the Royal River, which is interesting because that ties into the body. Like the Royal yep. River runs right through different A lot seasons. of guns in the Royal River. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and he said he went back home. And so they never recovered the weapon. Meanwhile, despite all this, of course, Andy's wife and her lover are found riddled with bullets. And there's also an insurance policy incentive. Uh, at least it's mentioned in the movie. I don't know that that's brought up in the book. 
Um, I, don't there, I don't think it is. Yeah. And there are other circumstances that just point this glaring neon arrow right at Andy as the murderer. Andy's a banker, right? So you're like, yeah. you would think, well, if anyone knows about this insurance you know, scam or whatever you want to call it, like, oh, I set out this policy and then lo and behold, you would think a banker. And what's really interesting is, yeah, you got the motive, you got the means, you got the opportunity. I mean, you got all three lined up here. But for me, the, of course, another thing King brings up is that Andy's demeanor kind of is the final nail in the coffin. But, but this is my one quibble. And this is something I think that comes from being an author who isn't a lawyer and you're a layperson and you're trying to just sell a specific drama. Andy probably not would not have been on the stand testifying in his own defense. That's kind of my feeling. If he had even a semi-competent public defender, they wouldn't have had him anywhere near that stand. You think um, because of his demeanor, they wouldn't? I think so. And I think, I think definitely, I think they probably would have said, no, dude, you look like a cold-blooded killer on that stand. And then King even describes him that way. He's chilly, you know, but what do you think about that? Do you, what do you think about Andy being on the stand? The first thing I think is that with all the true crime podcasts I listen to, if I was listening to an episode and they were presenting this evidence of, you know, he knows she has a lover and he's bought a gun that matches the ballistics and he's sitting outside the house drinking. I think it would be almost a foregone conclusion that the podcast listeners and the podcast hosts would be saying, yeah, we all get it. It's, it's the husband. It's the boyfriend. It's always, it's always um, the husband. Yeah. Yeah. And the difference between the, the movie and the book for me in the book, King talks about his demeanor, his chilly demeanor in the movie. You don't hear that until he starts to encounter red and ask mm -hmm. for the rock hammer and, and red's trying to figure him out. Like he's kind of keeps himself separate from the others, which I think there's a reason for that that relates to what you were talking about, about Bible stories and some of the mysticism that's in this. Yeah. But um, I think his chilly demeanor, would I, as a lawyer, have put him on the stand? I think lawyers in any criminal case, whether you're talking about a murder or DUI, that's the question is, do you put your defendant on the stand? How are they going to come off and how are they going to relate? How's the jury going to relate to them? Mm -hmm. um, as we just saw play out amongst celebrities. I don't know um, what you're talking about. I, no I, I've never heard of such no a idea in uh, recent times. What? But <laughs> the problem that I think most criminal lawyers think is if I don't put my client on the stand, it's almost an admission of you're not going to hear from them. Um, they're not going to tell you that they did not do it. Right. And really, the absence of a murder weapon, they don't have anything else. They, they can't say the gun doesn't match. I actually love Andy's line yeah. so much when he's like, considering the gun was never found, I find it decidedly inconvenient. Here's my question, though. Could Andy basically tell his lawyer, I don't care about your advice. I'm going on the stand. And, Absolutely. And he could do that. So even if the lawyer's like, worst idea on earth, but he's like, listen, I'm going to defend myself and I have a story to tell. We don't know that either. So that could have been a case too, where 
Andy might have definitely thought he could defend himself effectively. Which I feel like a lot of people probably would if they didn't do it. They're going to be like, surely if I tell my story. And I don't think law is, I mean, they're not listening to the podcast in the 40s, right? They don't, <laughs> we don't, we don't know all of these intricacies of that we know now just from pop culture and right. from everything that's in, you know, entertainment and whatnot. And so you have to imagine there's a bit of that, but also it's it's storytelling. Ultimately, what it comes down to, right? Like you don't want to watch a movie where he's sitting there silently. You want to hear him on the stand defending himself. Right, and that's the thing. It's a plot convenience. It is a character building convenience. Yeah. It's something that you just you have to do in order to illustrate something about the character, which it sets that stage is Andy as this kind of distant, enigmatic guy and also i think too king wanted us to think andy was guilty sure i mean we're coming at this story you and uh, the, the three of us but probably most people listening to this are coming to this knowing exactly how the story plays out and we're also so we're benefiting a lot from hindsight but when this story was fresh on the page and fresh on the screen we were we did not know if Andy really did it or not. It was really like a a total mystery until about halfway through, yeah? Do we know for sure he didn't do it? I guess it's my question because part of the whole joke is, not the joke, but the whole concept of this movie is like, you know, Red's like, I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank. Like everyone else is like, I'm innocent, lawyer fucked me, all that kind of stuff. I guess with the Elmo Black story, we mm -hmm. can assume, but I'm like, could that also be, are we making assumptions like the people on the jury made for his case? I don't know. I that's a question. I think the percentages change. Like at the beginning, you're like, maybe this guy really is, is guilty. And then over time you kind of become, or I became more convinced that he probably was not, but I don't know that I was 100% sure later on when you find out someone else had admitted. And then, and then when Andy, here's the thing though, Chris, I think we're both making a point. I'm going to bring this a little bit up from the, the sort of back half of the story, that final discussion that Red and Andy have definitely in the movie, in the book. Um, I don't know that it's, it is kind of the same um, where Andy's sort of at his low point and he starts talking to Red about Zawatanejo and he says, I killed my wife. I didn't pull the trigger, but I drove her away and she died because of me is in a way Andy is not a completely innocent party in this, in the sense of he was a bad husband and we don't know what kind of husband he was. He was probably a prick. He was, yeah. if Andy was anything like, and he was to his wife the way that he came off really through most of this story i would imagine he'd be a very hard man to be married to i mean this is the guy who goes up to the most evil what they call him evil screw of a prison guard to try to get him more money and does it in the worst way possible which is do you trust your wife that yes. is the absolute worst way to ask this monster of a human the question you want to get to. And I thought, surely this was a movie conceit. It'll be different in the novella. Exact same. Nope. Yeah, exactly. Exact same. I was like, oh my God, he just can't help himself. Yeah. Andy's a, a cold fish, I think was a word used to describe him. Yeah. He can shut it down to get what he wants. He, you know, in the movie he, and in the book, he has him right up on the edge of the roof there. And you think he's mm -hmm. going to go over. Yeah. But yeah. 
Andy Wait. obviously has it thought out three steps ahead. He's a chess player. Very, very much so. Do you feel if the last question I have on sort of the true crime angle that I'm taking uh, with this show right now? Wait, we have to is... tell everyone our joke, which is you were what, what was the you did the intro so perfectly, Kate. You're getting oh, a call from Mansfield Prison or yeah. Shawshank, <laughs> Shawshank Prison, Prison from Andy Dufresne. From <laughs> the serial episode four. Yeah, from, yeah. That was my serial. That was my serial reference. That was your like, serial, oh, yeah. I think honestly, it'd be so great um, in a real life court setting or in a real life setting. Do you think Andy would have likely been convicted? And do you also believe that there are any grounds that something like the Innocence Project? would have had any success or an appeal could have overturned. They could even say like they could argue on appeal, which it wouldn't, it wouldn't probably work given what I know of appeals nowadays is they could say his lawyer was incompetent for letting him or for, you know, allowing him or not advising him to get on the stand or they could say that, right. It wouldn't make any difference, but I feel like his conviction would probably be upheld even in absence of the murder weapon, because of all the circumstantial evidence, right? I would take that bet any day. I would take that appeal. So the first thing on any criminal appeal is ineffective assistance of counsel, always. Mm -hmm. And counsel number one is just knowingly the sacrificial lamb. Like, you're going to say that I sucked, and that's fine, (laughs) because that's what you need to get to the appeal. I would take the appeal because I think you could force at an appellate level where you're outside of a jury's purview, you could probably force those evidentiary things. You have nothing. Yeah. There is no physical evidence. You have no evidence whatsoever. You have motive, you have opportunity, but you don't really have anything beyond that. Right. Um, And then you would just have to drop in Mm -hmm. like suggestion that it's possible that there was somebody else. So Defense counsel just needs to start looking. Are there any other home invasions? Are there any other rapes or murders in the mm-hmm. nearby area? It's it's just doubt. That's all that you need to drop in. And then you have something like, you know, Tommy who comes in later as this witness, which is kind of hard because he's a jailhouse witness. Yep. He's, you know, he's he's got credibility problems. That's where probably an innocence project kind of situation could come in, investigate, or any kind of PI could investigate. And find, you know, like he said in the in the movie, W2s, former addresses, you mm-hmm. know, all this stuff. Allison, yeah. you're being obtuse. I don't really decide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. That Honestly, true confession here. My That was my first encounter with the word obtuse sure. used to describe a person. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. It's until... usually triangles, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in, I was a, I was like a junior in high school when I saw this movie or yeah, fr- or sophomore in high school when I saw this movie. So yeah, at that point I was only involved in geometry. <laughs> so uh, that, that was my context for that. And I have to say one other interesting thing I was reading and doing some just kind of background research on the, uh, on this show is that apparently forensic ballistics did exist in the forties. Mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent or how readily available it was. But the whole idea is like, if Andy just held on to that gun and didn't yeah. throw it away, they might've been able to prove the bullets that killed his wife and her lover. He would have been instantly not rolled out. He would have yeah, been like, did out. not come from his gun. So in some ways his doing that almost sealed his fate, which I was like, oh man, that's like another 
It's never discussed, but what a knife. They maybe might have tried to still press a case like maybe he had another gun. You know, I would feel like they would be desperate enough. But I feel like if they couldn't prove that he had another gun or. Right. It's a tough. It's such a tough case. Right. So fingerprints were around at that point, too. Right. Yes. So doorway, any other surfaces. I don't know where. Where were the uh, bullet casings? You would think bullet who casing. loaded the friggin' gun, right? Well, you know, fingerprints are kind of iffy because they don't always they don't always uh, stick to things. And and I feel like uh, fingerprints are another one of those Hollywood things that when you get into the nitty gritty of fingerprints, but there have been pulled those have been pulled off of bullet casings in real life right. murder cases. Right. So, but if if say somebody has dry hands or something, then you know maybe not. So. Um, I love talking about this case, though, in the true crime angle, because I do feel like it shows in many ways the veracity of really the whole thing that started this whole story of what got Andy in prison. I definitely admire King's ability to put together something like this in a way that it would be impossible, especially by the standards of 1947, which is when he was sent away, to be overturned, that there would be anything that could absolve him. If this happened now... I think we could probably find other exculpatory evidence. You could get microbial DNA and like do it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. They might even be able to go like, okay, the, but you know, what's also messed up is, of course, they could prove his car was there because the tire tracks were mm-hmm. there. And there was all these other pr- the proof. If he hadn't gone to his house, uh, you know, what's also really messed up is that the the sort of perfect storm of bad luck that happens that the night that you're there thinking about murdering your wife uh-huh. and her lover and you're drunk off your ass, you go home, it's a goddamn home invader that comes in and does it. Yeah. Like that to me is just... But that's why I say, can we fully trust Andy and Tommy? Are they reliable? I don't know. Like, I want to believe them, but I guess as we're sitting here talking about it, it just entered my brain of like, we assume he's innocent, but do we actually know? He's such a cold, calculated person. I don't know. I feel like he is. I do feel like it's one of those things of where your your demeanor and your actions can portray you in a certain way that can really fuck your life up if you are in the wrong circumstance. You know what I mean? So uh, a, a guy like Andy. He was perfectly happy to embezzle money and and, <laughs> and commit fraud to open a library. <laughs> I mean, you're in what prison. What else is this guy capable of? It's, well, see that also, I'm glad that you brought that up too, because that's another kind of rabbit hole uh, subject right there of, of what happens in so many instances when people go to prison especially if they're guilty of lower level crimes, that that's where they go to learn how to be a criminal. That's what Andy said. I'm an innocent man. I had to go to Shawshank to be a criminal. And that's so in so many cases, right? Like drug people who are put in prison for drug offenses, they go in prison, they become even harder drug addicts. Oh, and masters of whatever the thing is, because they go and learn from those people. You're in crime college. I mean, that's basically (laughs) that's what prison is. So, uh, but definitely Andy has a streak of Machiavellianism without a doubt. I mean, he's a banker. So I think that's, again, plays into that. You already have this whole cold streak of I think banker, high level bankers, like he was, Yeah, he wasn't a pediatrician for crying out loud, you know, (laughs) veterinarian. Uh, Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) At least if you're, unless you're the vet from Better Call Saul. (laughs) Yeah. 
true crime show. Oh, That's it really, true. it really is. You guys remember the case where, and I cannot think of the name right now, but the father um, was like out playing basketball. His wife and his two kids are murdered. And he used to work for the police department or the sheriff's department. He comes home, finds them like murdered. The kids are in the car and everyone is convinced he's got DNA evidence on his, on his clothing. Cause he's picked up and held the children. Um, and like the, everything, all of the facts are, he, this guy did it. This guy yeah. did it. He did it. He did it. And it ultimately turns out that it very clearly was someone else, actually an escaped convict. Oh my gosh. Did the murder, but this guy went to jail and years and years and years and years of um, appeals and attempts to resolve it. And this is a straight white male who used to be a police officer who had friends in, in law enforcement. Um, So when you're talking about like all the bad luck that can exist, that's what this guy experienced. And it took forever. I remember that case. I cannot remember the name and I don't remember what podcast I heard it on, but I definitely heard the did true crime garage do this um i'm Man. sure yeah okay by the anyway. way shout out to true crime garage love forever love which yes. you turned me on to allison yeah yeah i love it. it it's um it's one of those shows that um you know that those guys and oh god going west that's another one they do such a great job they're a lot like true crime garage heath and daphne yes oh my god they're so great <laughs> um but the the elements of this case really seem at least solid enough especially by the standards of american justice in many ways especially back then so yeah. at this point when andy enters in his fate is very well sealed and we really don't know what the appeals process is like, or if there is one or what the case is in Maine, what the, what the laws are in Maine. King doesn't get into those things. He only has yeah. like parole. Like the book gets in, into the parole uh, aspect of things a little bit, but heartbreakingly with Brooks, one of the, Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Will mm. yeah. Brooks is a, is a interesting character. I'll go ahead. We'll go ahead and get into Brooks because I feel like we're already leading into sort of the existential element of this story, which is Andy comes in and he has a different air about him. He's new, obviously to prison. He's never broken a crime in his life that we know of, uh, but he's new to this. Everybody that he meets along the way is a quote unquote institutional man. And you'll hear that word a lot, institutionalized institution. And that sense of these are convicts they're they've been in for decades for hard crimes this is the sort of prison that houses these sorts of of inmates right the violent crime you could assume most of the people in this prison have are convicted of murder or Mm -hmm. just high level felonies so red fully admits and describes in the book he describes his crime he fixed the brakes quote unquote fixed the brakes on someone's car and killed everyone in it. Uh, and wasn't it his wife's car? It was his wife, and I think somebody else was in the car with her, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think, think three people ended up dying from what he did. I can't remember if they're all in the car or the car hit people because of uh, what he had done. Yeah, like I think a child too, wasn't there? Yeah, and you don't get that. We don't know the nature of the murder. He never says it in the movie. No, it's never brought up. Why don't we dislike Red? We know that he did this terrible thing. 
like maybe we like Andy because we believe that he's probably innocent and has been wrongly convicted. Why do we love Red? Is it the benefit of the doubt because he's the narrator and we automatically identify? I mean, obviously in the movie, it's Morgan Freeman. So you're like, it's Morgan. But in the book, to me, it's that uh, he's the person who has the benefit of looking back and retelling the full story. And I don't know. There's something about that where you automatically put trust in the narrator. So I will say this in my college days when I was aspiring to be a forensic psychologist and I was working very closely with uh, my psychology professor at the time and he was the chief psychologist at McNeil Island uh, Penitentiary in Washington State. Um, he took our class on tours of the prison mm-hmm. and it was the last remaining Island prison in the United States at the time. It is no longer open. I yeah. Believe. There's something about that. Yeah. That was a fascinating trip. And we got to sit down and talk to uh, several of the inmates like one-on-one or the class versus like they would bring them into a room and we would have a conversation about them and they you could tell the ones that were being very diversionary in their language. They were speaking in very passive voice or they wouldn't put themselves in their crime, right? They had a distance between it almost as a way of shying away. But there was one or two that were very honest about what they did. And they were also very obviously remorseful about it, but they didn't shy away from it. They didn't use language to cover their asses they were very forthright about, I killed a person. This is what I did. And there's something about that that garners a lot of respect, even though you know what they did. And at the same time, they're very likable people on a base level. If I didn't know that this person was a murderer, I would enjoy sitting and talking and having a beer with them and never knowing or, or whatever. So there's like an element of honesty and charisma that come into play. And so why do I root for Red? Why do I like Red? I think it's because he doesn't hide what he did. He's and he even in the movie, we don't know his crime, but he says only guilty man is Shawshank. He mm-hmm. knows exactly what he did. And he and he has a clear element of like, and I hate myself for it. I think there's something about that. Like if 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 Red was anything less than honest about his own guilt he would be shady and we wouldn't be rooting for him in the same way. So as the narrator, like Chris said, there's so much chaos going on around all of the events. There's, you know, there's the fraud, there's the embezzlement, there's the abuse by the guards, there's Mm. the relationships of the inmates. And red is like one of the, he's a sane voice. Like he is a reliable narrator. He doesn't lie. He doesn't hide things. And so you're right when you say that the title redemption it's it's as much or more about red's redemption than it is about andy's because i don't even know how andy necessarily feels about he probably doesn't feel like he needs to be redeemed because he believes he knows he didn't do this crime um he's somehow still able to like bide his time um a few decades worth of time where you have someone like red who's been sitting in prison for 20 years by the time andy gets there and by the time andy busts out in the book they add it's an additional 10 years in the movie it's shortened to 19 in the book it's like 27 years that that andy's in and and by that point uh red has been in for almost 50 years almost as long as brooks 
was. I mean, he was 40 right. years in the book. So we can assume almost 50 years in. Yeah. I'm sorry. 40 years in the movie. So maybe 50 years in the book. So by that point, especially it's like, okay, how long is long enough? That is a question that comes up regularly in this story. And who decides that? And what purpose is that serving Bart, the guy that I just mentioned, the psychologist friend of mine, we've had we've had this discussion numerous times of like, why do you think someone needs to be in prison for say 60 years for such and such thing? What what's the basis of that? It's pure emotion is what it is. It's what we because we want to punish someone for as long and as hard as we can. Yeah, pure punishment. Why is that exactly? The story touches on this a lot. It's like, they put you away for life. And that's exactly what they take away from you. They let mm -hmm. you out mm -hmm. when you're used up and you got a few marbles rolling around in your head and you are basically useless to society. Even if you're not institutionalized, quote, unquote, that, yeah. that's what they say, right? Like yeah. that's, that's how Brooks couldn't make it on the outside. He was basically his entire life at Shawshank. It's a little more understated in the novella, mm -hmm. but the voiceover and just the montage that when Brooks writes that letter, yeah, heart-wrenching. I don't care how many times I've seen that movie. It is a gut punch every single time. You know, he's like, I go to the park to feed the birds. I think Jake will show up, but he never yeah. does. Like, that's just like that bird was like the one friend on the outside. He thought he could maybe get a chance to see. It's just, it's awful. And it's just so sad. One thing I love about what Darabont did in the adaptation of this is that there was a bird named Jake in the book. It was another inmate that had him. And he was the one who was in for a long time. He raised Jake from a, a little baby birdie and then set him free from the plate shop before he got out and then they found Jake dead right nearby, like after this inmate left. That was apparently filmed and it's a deleted scene. Oh, okay. So they yeah. actually filmed that, that they, the, after Brooks left, they found him like, yeah, in the prison yard. Because that kind of, the bird himself was also institutionalized in his own yeah. way, which a lot of animals are when we take them in. I mean, even our own, like my cat would not survive, <laughs> you know, without us. Um, so this whole idea, and I love that Frank, saw the need to make Brooks into what he was in the movie because you need this visual representation of the institutionalization of these inmates. And he also represents this sort of like this invisible prison that that we need to escape. It's not just the walls. It's in your mind uh, when you leave. He's so afraid all the time. That's all you hear. And, and even Red you know, brings that up much later too. I'm just tired of being afraid all tired the time. Tired of being afraid all the time. That line really struck me because the sadness for me about Brooks is in prison, he was somebody. He was the librarian. Mm -hmm. He had these relations based on that. He had some control, some freedoms. On the outside, he's just a grocery bagger that has a crappy boss, you know? The whole idea of someone who has been in prison this long, it makes you wonder like, it's almost crueler to let them out than you think you're giving somebody their freedom. But freedom is one of those things that when you aren't trained to use it properly, you don't know what to do with it. It's kind of more of a burden than it is a gift. And so this idea of like, hey, congratulations, it's almost like you just hand someone this really advanced tool that they've never seen before and, and expect them to just build an airplane with it. And a whole lot of decisions that they didn't have to make. It's like that final dehumanizing cherry yeah. on a shit Sunday. It's yeah. like, 
we've we've gone ahead and we've kept you in these walls for 50 some years and now here you go and in in real life america right now in 2022 you have people being let out of prison with no more than like a 40 dollar uh check and they're not even allowed to leave yeah. the jurisdiction in which they were arrested so a lot of times they are being sent back to nothing so what they have not even the benefit always of a halfway house right they're almost or certainly gonna do yeah and so when when brooks talks about maybe i ought to you know get a gun and and rob the food way and maybe i'll shoot the manager for an extra you know <laughs> i mean it's funny but at the same time that's exactly what happens oh recidivism with stuff like that is amazing i mean there's a point a, a t- amount of time that you spend in prison that once you're past that point recidivism rate or the reoffense rate goes up so high for that reason. Mm-hmm. At least there it's, there's a place to sleep, there's food to eat, there's people around. Um, and maybe if you're lucky, you have some role, you're the guy who gets things or you're the librarian or you're the guy who helps the warden defraud you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Um, the, the whole the whole thing is built on rehabilitation, but it's like, what are the mechanisms by which you're rehabilitated? You're sitting in this pocket universe with your thoughts that don't operate in the real span of time. And then somehow you're going to leave this alternate dimension, go into the real world and be fully integrated and a, a member of society who is productive because you are seen as part of society. How does that even happen? And good luck finding a job, right? And you put f- convicted felon on your job application. And you're um, seven years old. Yes. And you're, you're being released as an old person. It is hard enough for a non-convicted 50-year-old person to find a job, let alone one freshly out of prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they don't have good family or if they don't have a good stable situation to return to, yeah, they're right back in and it's a revolving door and it's all part of that whole system. And And I feel like King explains this in such a beautiful way um, and demonstrates it. There will be people that, that will argue some of the veracity of what happens inside prison, but I feel that some of those creative liberties can be taken, but overall the description of the prison system and how it works and what it does to people when Red says these walls are funny, they are. First you hate them and then you come to depend on them. And that is the damn truth. Have you guys um, lived or listened to the podcast Ear Hustle? No. Mm-hmm. So it's a podcast made by um, two people. Erlon Woods is the one of the hosts who was in San Quentin for many, many years. In fact, when they started the podcast, he was still an inmate. He's out now. Oh, wow. Um, And then the woman that he does the podcast with, she had a grant to come and work with inmates um, and it's prison stories. And it is amazing. Mm. Like it, it is, it's so amazing because it really talks about the way that prison changes you, especially long time. Um, and how it how it can institutionalize you. And I think it's like in the third season when he gets, he knows he's going to be paroled and he's scared out of his mind. Like he talks about it. He's like, I'm going back to the same area in California where I came from. Right. Family and friends. Are they going to accept me? Are they going to reject me? Some of both. What am I going to do? You know, how am I going to be able to stay, stay clean? And he's probably... I want to say 40 at the time that he gets released. He's not like Brooks or Red ultimately, 
who are older. It's a fascinating podcast that looks at the and what the the walls are funny. I would love to get in touch with them possibly for because I'm doing a season on on prison and I'd really oh, love wow, to talk. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Nigel Poor is the woman's name that he does it with. Erlon Woods and Nigel Poor. Wonderful. Thank you for yeah. that. Um, I, oh God, I could expound on this honestly for hours and hours and hours, but, um, but I just, I feel like King reveals so much of his own internal values with the way he tells this story. And I feel like, you know, sometimes a writer will open themselves up uh, to show some of the deepest, blackest parts of their psyche, um, like he did, say, in Pet Cemetery, which, you know, last week we talked about, um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the week before last, when we talked in the Pet Cemetery episode, uh, James D.F. Hanna and I, about how King almost didn't like where he went in that story because there was too much nihilism involved. Um, and it didn't reflect how he tends to see the world. Whereas in Shawshank, you see it's honestly a, a, an absolute other side of the coin of King's values. And it's the main reason I personally relate so much to him as an author, because, you know, amid all the horror that he describes in so many of his stories, it's this vivid sense of humanity and the good it can encompass. And I feel like that's also why this story is so popular among the mainstream and why it was such a huge hit once it was released on DVD and people started giving it a chance and they sat and watched this thing, they were completely blown away by it. It is still the number one rated film of all time on IMDb. Number one, Over the Godfather, which is number two, it's a 9.3 out of 10. And I feel it's like that because on the one hand, it appeals, I think, in some ways on the spiritual level. Also, I feel it has a lot of Christian allegory. Yeah. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit uh, because that, that for me is one of the more interesting elements. And I don't think we have to dig too far to see these things. Yeah. It's an aspect of King too. And it floats around in a lot of his in a lot of his books, actually, both for good and bad. Right, right. Well, you know, we have the warden that's more highlighted in, because uh, we only have one warden in the Darabont film through the whole thing. Whereas in the in the novella, we have like three or four wardens, and he's the final one that comes. Yeah, Norton is the one in the movie, and he's the last warden. Yeah. He's obviously, he's the hardcore Christian hypocrite. And narratively, you just need one warden. You need the one who carries it through for the movie. Like, it makes sense for the novella. You show the passage of years with these different wardens. But yeah. this one, it's like, you need the the tough monster who hides behind the veil of pious Christianity who you realize is it's all storefront, right? You need your icons. You need your yeah. your warden and you need Byron Hadley, yeah. you know, the the bad guy. Those are your bad guys right Ooh, there. That actor is such Clancy Brown. He is amazingly scary. He mm-hmm. is not only Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob, yeah. guys. Yeah. He you it, like I almost want to tell any kid that loves SpongeBob and Mr. Krabs, like, I'm gonna show you this movie called no. Shawshank Redemption, yeah. where guy. he, you know, calls someone a maggot dick motherfucker. Uh <laughs> or butt steak. But <laughs> he has some of the he has some of the best insults. They're so off the wall. He he really uh, does. Could be an insult or a or a compliment. You never know. But, you know, back to the the Christian allegory aspects, I, I love 
I wrote a couple of things down to point some of this out. Like, you know, we have an innocent man being convicted of a crime. I mean, that is very much a, you know, Jesus allegory right there. Mm -hmm. And then we have during his incarceration, he befriends prisoners, reforms the prison from within, of course, by building the library, helping many of the prisoners get their high school diplomas. Yeah. And then in the movie, which honestly is one that always gives me goosebumps, even when I think about it, the Madam Butterfly yes. uh, scene where he's playing the opera and people are looking up at it. They're in the prison yard and that shot, that crane shot of all of them looking up and this music playing. And then my second favorite shot is you got the warden knocking on the door saying, let me in here. And Andy leans forward and, and the iciness in his eyes, that defiant look when he turns up that volume and apparently Tim Robbins ad-libbed that. That wasn't in the script. Oh, really? He added that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't That's know that. Amazing. Isn't that oh, great? God, it's it's just beautiful. Well, and the other thing is too is Andy is willing to take his hit, right? Like he's willing to be pushed to the edge of the roof to get the guys' beers or to make them feel like a human mm-hmm. for a minute. He's willing to get put in solitary to let them hear the opera. He's Jesus-like in that way. He wants them to feel that grace of freedom and hope. And that's part of the reason I feel like he's a cold fish on the outside, but there's more to him. And I think that's part of the enigma of him. And also it serves to demonstrate that buffer between Red and Andy because Red can't be in Andy's head. He's only showing what he can see, right? But we see these actions that Andy is doing. And there's also him, of course, allying with the guards and finding ways to ally himself with the powers that be so he can help those around him. And it, like I said, there's that Machiavellian aspect, but it's also like, it's white collar crime. I guess I just don't look at it quite the same way. It's like, Okay, but you're using a lot of that money for and a lot of that other money that he got for the library was stuff that that was from his own work. He wrote mm-hmm. the government multiple times like he was the bug in the net for six in years. their ear for <laughs> six years he wrote yeah. and and got that money. So that was perfectly legal appropriated funding from the state of Maine that he got that library built. But he did it through currying favor. It's like he was, he knew how to make the right moves with the right mm-hmm. people to get the warden to say to him, you go ahead and write your letters. I'll even mail them for you. Because he, he doesn't believe that Andy as the rebel, which if you, if you're, if you think of Jesus as a rebel, mm-hmm. he doesn't believe that Andy can accomplish anything. Yeah. I'll send your letters for you. They're not going anywhere. As Jesus does. And he ends up exposing the corruption. Right. And so, and standing up to it in a way, whenever he finally, when Andy finally sees that he has this chance for getting a new trial and all this stuff with Tommy comes out and then he ends up confronting him and saying, I'm not doing it anymore. And and then of course the warden threatens him, casts him down in the hole for two months you know, we'll talk a little bit here as we get to it more in the chron- chronology of the story, as if we're kind of following that. This is more like a, a nebulous discussion. That That's ship has sailed, I think. <laughs> chronology at this point? Come on. When, of course, Andy ends up pulling his big surprise at the end, and in the movie especially, a tool of misdirection is used when... We think, again, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's seeing this movie for the first time and isn't aware of the plot in in any way. 
spoiler alert, he does escape, right? He's been planning his escape from prison for you know a very long time. He's been Absolutely. tunneling, he's been tunneling through that wall behind those Rita Hayworth posters and the Raquel Welch and and uh, Linda Ronstadt was mentioned in the book. That's not in the movie. At the same time, in the movie, we think Andy is killing him, getting ready to kill himself. He is asked for a length of rope. <laughs> and of course, I love, by the way, the movie, the other inmates, the Haywood and all these guys, you know, that are like- Not part, in the book at all. Not in the all book. All of those friends, except for Tommy, none of them, no. and Red, of course, none of them are in the book. It really kind of rounds out the idea of this lived-in feeling. It's You don't get a lot of those insights in the novella. It's more this story. You don't get kind of the day-to-day life mm-hmm. stuff. It's more broad brush, but- you need it for the movie. And so, yeah, you have this pretty extensive friend group, even though they don't get a lot to do, there's yeah. all kind of there. They have their own little dialogue. They have their, they have their own little bits. Yeah. I wonder if that's the reality um, that, I mean, it, it has to be that relationships form and exist and change and, well, there's a no. whole pecking order, right? Yeah. And, I, and I feel yes. like, you know, we get a little bit of that with Andy in the very beginning of the novella. Andy's already getting targeted by the sisters, the mm-hmm. the rapists that are beating him and, and assaulting him. It, it pretty much when Andy first approaches Red in the, in the yard in the book, he's already got a black eye. He's already, he's already been, yeah. you know, handled, you know, he's already dealing with this. So, which makes the rock hammer request all the more suspicious, right? Yes, yes. I actually really liked that. the The movie does alter the chronology a, a tiny bit to sort yeah. of uh, give it a little more focus. And of course, like when Andy gets beat to within an inch of his life, and the whole thing with like you broke Rooster's nose, you're gonna swallow what I give you to swallow. That whole scene, anything you put in my mouth, you're gonna, you're lose. gonna lose. You're gonna lose. Oh, I love that. I love that. And it just shows again, Andy is kind of a badass. Like. He doesn't yeah. care. He, that cold streak, that coolness that he has is what serves him so well. But he wins by his in- intellect and intelligence, always. He does it against the warren. He does it against bogs. Like, he even wins over the other group members kind of with just, because again, he's the cold fish, but his intellect and his abilities, I guess you might say, are what kind of win him over. Even though they didn't serve him well in his trial, <laughs> they're at least serving him well here. That goes back to the the messianic talk about him being separate, him being different yes. than the others. Yes. Um, but it's such an interesting choice on King's part. I think he's not warm. He's not someone that you see as a typical hero, although he does these heroic things. So if you contrast that with King's other prison novel, which I also, or novels, which I also adore, which is Green Mile. Absolutely. Um, oh, I mean, God. you have an even clearer messianic, like a fully openly stated. Mm-hmm. And that character, John Coffey, is incredibly warm. I mean, he's a raw nerve. He's wide open to people and what is going on. He, this, he is King's take on um, Of Mice and Men. Yes. <laughs> and, and and again, plays with the what you expect Versus what happened. He, again, creates another crime that looks almost like, well, of course he did it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you're right. The messianic thing is, I think, a a regular trope. And of course, the one that really brings it home here is, of course, when Andy makes his escape, they go and they find his cell empty, which is like the empty tomb after... You yeah. know, the crucifixion, right? Because at that point, you're thinking Andy's at his worst point. 
And, you know, so, yeah, he's brought the lowest he's been brought, and then he's gone. And then, of course, we see this whole rebirth. It's the whole escape is a symbol of rebirth from going down that long, narrow, dark, dank tube. Obviously not full of shit, hopefully, when you're <laughs> when you're being born. Like, that scene, by the way, in the film is depicted pitch perfect. Everything yeah. from when he's busting open the pipe with the rock with to the timing of the the thunder strikes and then he's yeah. going through the tunnel squeezing through that tunnel it is amazing the one thing i will say can movies stop making lightning and thunder happen at the exact same time <laughs> it doesn't happen stop doing can. it well here's the beautiful thing and lightning doesn't go it was it was very cheesy lightning thunder. Uh. The reason it's like that, though, is because, again, this is from inside Red's head. And he's just at this point, this is how he's thinking it happens. I, so. you're, you're making a little bit of a leap there. This is every movie. Lightning and thunder. Well, sure. I'm just talking about in this instance, it's going to be amplified to a more fantastical level, specifically because of the way the story is being told. True. One thing I will say that is in the novella, but it's not really mentioned when he climbs, when he crawls through the five football field length of river of shit. Um, Red just sort of theorizes what would Andy have thought if he got to the end of that tunnel and there was a gate there, it yeah. was welded shut or it narrowed to a point he couldn't fit through. Yeah. And that's such a terrifying thought that's never explored in the movie. The idea that you're going to crawl this far, you can't crawl back. No, he can't get, he, there's no way back. He, this is a point of no return pretty much once he climbs in there. That is a very haunting realization when red says that like i got chills red brings up a lot of those points actually not just that he talks about like what if um what if he got paroled after all when mm. this tunnel was in the wall what if the whole pipe got discovered or what if they ended up connecting that pipe to the water treatment plant because that was like the one mm -hmm. unit that hadn't been yet and then oh, he talks right. about like the the money and identity that he had buried in and under that rock in the field for all those years. And one thing I like too is the book set up the whole separate identity was set up by a friend that Andy had on the outside. And it was before he went in, right? Didn't yeah. they set it up? He made all these plans before he went in, which I thought I thought was more interesting in its own way. That guy, that friend on the outside died, you know? So Red talks about what if a parking lot was built where that wall is under 10 feet of concrete. The whole thing is just the land of ifs, right? Yeah, that could drive you insane. Yes, and we've all had, I think, life events where you think, if this had happened differently, or if I had done this or hadn't done this, what would it have been? Yeah, because it, it really is but so many can't. factors. If one little thing went wrong. Well, and even to reverse back and go to the, the Christian element, he has this little rock hammer inside the Bible that in the movie, the warden picks up and is holding mm -hmm. when they're searching his cell. And, back to him. and you don't know the first time you see it, of course. And then there's the whole thing, salvation lies within. He hands it back to the warden. And that's his little mic drop when he does the switch and the warden opens the safe and he says, you're right. Salvation does lie within. And the hammer is in the book of Exodus. Exodus, yeah. the book of Exodus. So it's like that to me is the most poetic justice aspect of this entire story. That's a huge what if, right? All that warden had to do is like, 
thumb open to his favorite passage, find that rock hammer, he's done. And you're talking about, you know, 20 years that flat out disturbed me. The idea of just picking with the, with the rock hammer for that long and making this much progress every night because you can only do it for a little while. You don't want people to hear you. This is one of my favorite elements of the book that is kind of very offhand mentioned because in the movie, Andy keeps his little one person cell the entire time. But in the book, he ends up with a cellmate for like That's nine right. months. And, and he has to stop. He has to stop digging. And the guy that he shared the cell with felt a draft yeah, and, that's and right. Andy wouldn't let him touch any of his stuff. And he just, the room was always really cold. And so red looks back on that is like, Oh, so that was going on back when he had the cellmate for nine months, he would have been gone even sooner than that. And maybe would have bought him another year. If he, if they hadn't had that one cellmate during that one warden transition or whatever. So there were so many things that, could have haunted anybody, but also he had gotten to the point where he couldn't back out. He was stuck. And we don't know. We It's not revealed really in the movie. It's still treated as a guess on Red's part how Andy even discovered this. In, in the movie, they make it look like Andy was going to try to carve his name in the wall with the end of the rock hammer and a chunk of the concrete fell out. That was like his best guess, but we still don't know what caused Andy to to start digging in the first place. Doesn't Andy say that he hadn't really thought about it until he asked for the rock hammer from red and red was like, well, yeah, I guess it would take you a hundred million years to dig with this little hammer. Yeah. And that gave him the idea, just the patience involved and all the what ifs. So the subtitle to the story is hope springs eternal. And you have to believe that the whole time he's like, I just have to hope. I just have to hope that the what ifs aren't going to get me and that I'm going to get to the outside, even though it's been 20 years and I'm 55 years old. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's hope. And I think in the novella, doesn't he surmise red surmises that maybe Andy got a hold of some blueprints of the prison, like when he's in the warden's office or something, but you're right. He never quite knows. We do see that scene. What's interesting to me is in the novella, his first request is for a Rita Hayworth poster. Yes. And then over the years replaces them. And the movie, he asks Red to smuggle in Rita Hayworth when they're watching one of her movies. Yeah. And he's like, give me a couple of weeks. And then he gets the poster. So it makes me wonder, was this to your Machiavellian point? Allison, did he ask for Rita Hayworth knowing Red would like think to get a poster? Was he like playing that second layer of chess? Ah. Or did he make it as a comment? Red sends him a poster and then he has the realization like where in the time frame is he carving and getting the poster? We don't we don't know. You're absolutely right because in the book they talk about how Andy came to him and he was like super excited and like very high strung, like something was mm-hmm. eaten at him. But in the movie, he just looks, he looks like he's having a good time at the movie. You don't yeah, really yeah. get the sense. Yeah. Again, we're trying to like almost apply hindsight to it. But if you're trying to watch it through the eyes of someone who's never seen it before, you're looking at Tim Robbins in that scene. He just looks like he's having a nice time. It doesn't look super excitable or, or anxious or, Anything and it's like almost that. just a joke, like, hey, I hear you get things, you know, that people want. He's like, I've been known to locate items from time to time. Let me read a Hayworth. You know, it's almost like a joking conversation between friends. Don't forget that 
between the time Andy asks for Rita Hayworth or the poster and the time that he actually, it comes in um, is when he has the worst encounter with the sisters. That's right. And he's in the infirmary for like a month. You have to wonder too, at what point did Andy really break through between like, how long did it take him to actually break through and actually make the decision to go? Because I feel like there had to have been, and I think it might've been the novella that touched on this is Andy dealing with his own sense of institutionalization and making that decision to do it because that's an element as well. Yeah. And there's that great line that red says in the novella where he's like, I imagine Andy stared at that poster and imagined that he could crawl into it and get out of here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, so basically he's like, I I think that poster was his portal out and lo and behold, it ends up being his portal out. Just not in the way that red is kind of theorized. I think the movie builds the revelation of the escape. So perfectly the way Mm. the warden throws the rock at the poster and then you all of a sudden hear it dancing down and hitting something and then he reaches through what almost appears to be like the belly button of Raquel Mm. Welch and then the shot of him pulling the poster off in that tunnel shot of fading back it is so gorgeous because like the warden is unhinged at this point he's screaming like red you know something like what about fuzzy britches over there like he's just yeah. On hand, she's like, of course, no one knows anything. Yeah, and he's like, hallelujah, it's a miracle. <laughs> That's right. And then you just see this look on his face like, the fuck? Like, he's just <laughs> mind blown. Well, and think how flimsy a poster is to cover that yeah. much. Oh, yeah. You would think it would be like swaying with like wind and suction, but it's, yeah. Those little details that are in the novella that are so easy to appreciate because they're, they're not in the movie and and, the, and they wouldn't make sense in the movie. There's no way to really put those into a screenplay, but the idea of the draft coming in mm-hmm. and you would think that the cellmate might've peaked a little bit, you know, mm. might've seen the poster, all these little things. Again, it's like this, this matchstick house that could have just fallen apart at any little thing. But all of these elements, you know, that we've discussed here and the symbolism involved and how like, like for me, like I am not, I'm not a Christian. I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a certified agnostic. I'm not an atheist, but I'm not, I'm not a, a Christian, but I was brought up and we're all living in a society that's shaped by Judeo-Christian values. So we at least can recognize these things. And also if we look at, all religions through a very objective lens, like at the heart of them, they're all kind of designed to help us appeal to our better natures, our better urges, like the golden rule and forgiveness and generosity, turning the other cheek, redemption, which is a very Christian ideal, like on paper, we don't see it (laughs) very often. But it's like one of those ideals that we hold up as like this thing we strive for. It's all very aspirational. And Unfortunately, as the story also illustrates, it shows all the other competing forces coming at that. The greed, the hate, the corruption, the hypocrisy that all get in the way. The violence, yes, that get in the way of realizing these things. And of course, the irony being that one of the things getting in the way of that is, say, the warden and his Christian hypocrisy. He sort of represents the problems of organized religion standing in the way of the realization of the goals of religion, 
you know, and the the stated goals of religion, I should say. That's interesting because King walks that line a lot mm-hmm. um, with the hypocrisy of religion or the fanaticism of religion. He has characters um, throughout his work. Um, I'm thinking of the mother in the dead zone who was just mm. a religious, religious fanatic. Oh, Carrie and, oh, as well. Yeah, and Carrie. Absolutely. Miss Carmody from The Mist. Yes. Miss Carmody. Uh, yeah. Or mm-hmm. um, I think The Stand, that's another one uh, right there too. Definitely. Um, but he equally sort of indicates at times, at least that he thinks there's some kind of unifying force or there's some kind of good force out mm-hmm. there. Yeah. If you want to think of that as religion. Um, and sometimes he calls it that and sometimes he doesn't. And he's at least in my understanding and tell me if you guys, if you're aware of this too, in my understanding, he, he's been kind of like unclear about King has about his own, you know, position or feelings about it. And I think his daughter, Naomi is an ultra is a practitioner of like alternate yeah, she's a Unit- Unitarian Universalist, yeah. um, which is more like, yeah, it's more of a deism or we acknowledge a spiritualism amongst us, but it just doesn't have a, a, a figurehead. So if Andy is an innocent, why does he have to go through so much terrible stuff? Mm-hmm. And why does he even lower himself to engage with knowingly engage with the fraudulent stuff to get to this place of escape. Cause how does that, if you're thinking about him as Jesus, how does that uplift everyone else? Well, that, that whole story of Jesus, right. Of being um, born as a human and, and going through all these human trials, that, that whole thing of like, he died for our sins kind of thing. And I don't mean to say that mockingly and, and mock people's beliefs, but it is this idea that we were supposed to be redeemed through him, and through him. his sacrifice. But it was like, it didn't because what it ultimately paints is, I mean, when you see what was done to him, and you know how he was tortured and 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 Trade i can't and think of a honestly can't think of a worse way to die than being crucified right. i don't know being stuck in a shit tunnel sounds pretty bad yeah that's <laughs> true <laughs> i mean we're still <laughs> yeah we're still giant pieces of shit as a species i mean come on you know um not not you know at, overall i mean we're cool sure yeah, but i mean no, it's just it's just like <laughs> but I mean, what did it ultimately accomplish? Right. That's just the question we always kind of deal with. But I love that King kind of like shows these forces at play and acknowledges a, a sort of spiritualism. And I love how this whole idea of if you have in your circle, like your friends, your family, those who truly see us and believe in us have the power to redeem us. And if we hold on to those things, we can quite possibly find our own personal Zawatanejo. And that to me is like the really powerful message here. And and one thing that is beautiful about Red's redemption is that he was ready to give up. He saw himself as Brooks. Brooks's death really got in his head probably more than anything. And he just saw himself that way. And one thing we, we have to mention, though, is Red's arc as illustrated in the movie through his parole hearings. Yeah. And that really shows that that final one, because through the whole thing, he's like, yep, I'm rehabilitated. Yep. 
uh, you no know, longer dangerous to society. Learn my lesson. Yes, sir. And it's all very performative. Yeah, yeah. Performative. And then you get to the end and he's just like, go ahead and sign your forms and stamp your, what have you, Sonny? Cause I really don't give a shit. And he challenges the word rehabilitation, right? He says it's a made up word. So men like you can wear fancy suits and have a job. He's like, it's, it's not a real thing. And he talks about his own regret and how he wish he could just get that young version of him and talk some sense into him. You know, it's like, there's not a day it goes by. I don't regret it, but like, it's just a very earnest and, and you can tell he's ready to be like, stamp the damn form so I can go back out in the yard. Like that's where he's at. Whereas before he's like trying his best to get that approval from the parole board. What I love though, is he didn't care one way or the other if he left or stayed, but what kept him going was his, his experiences with Andy and knowing that Andy was out there and also, I want to mention, too, that this is this is a story that people could rightly criticize in some ways for having zero female characters, aside from the one who was murdered in the very beginning. Incidentally, it does pass the Bechdel test in a very odd way, because oh. there's no women. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, At all. No. There's no I women mean, with speaking lines, so they can't talk to right. a man. Oh, man. I mean, that is the best, <laughs> Chris. I mean, it does take large place largely in a men's prison. Let's acknowledge, but yeah. We also have to acknowledge the fact that a lot of toxic masculinity is demonstrated through movies that are very male heavy, but also do not demonstrate the sort of unfettered loving friendship that these two have for one another. It is never questioned. It is never... It is a, simply a story of two men who just fit together and that love each other. The actors joke that it's male friendship that doesn't involve a car chase. Like, that's their joke. Like, <laughs> Yeah, you don't have explosions. Yeah, you do have a prison break, but it's not like a heist. It's not like a... It's not a, this rough and tumble, yeah. like, oh, man, it's not like, man. Or, not yeah, a war exactly. story. Exactly. The f- and the fact yeah. that we get to see, because by the end of the novella, we don't get the final outcome. You know, we have Red on the bus and we have him saying, and really the whole point of the story is realized in those final words of saying, I hope mm. because Red had never hoped before he, he uh-huh. learned. He said, to, hope is a dangerous thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Especially if you know you're going to be in jail for 20 years. It's pretty dangerous. To and hope. you can know like through the, everything that King has told us through the entirety of this story what will probably happen? Of course, I truly believe Red will make it. I don't think that's really in question. I just think that King thought he resolved the story. He resolved the question. He answered the question the story presented. You know, he brought Red to his ultimate arc. But I absolutely adore the fact that Darabont took it just one step further. He didn't want to. I know. I know the studio wanted him to. It's the studio who did it. Darabont wanted the ending ambiguous like King did. Studio wouldn't I, let him. I feel like that final shot, I'm with the studio on this one. Well, he did it on his terms. It's not a close-up. You don't hear them. You're way far removed. You see these two friends off mm-hmm. in the distance, walk toward each other. So he didn't want it, but I think he did it in a way that at least maintains some of that purer ending that I think the novella has 
I do love the ending of the novella. I think it's, again, um, I think people give King a harder time for his endings than he deserves in a lot of ways. <laughs> this isn't one of them, though, right? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I wouldn't think so. Um, because I, I do feel like this has a pitch-perfect ending. But every time I see Red walking up that beach, and every time I see Andy hopping down from the boat and then i see them embrace from that really high crane shot i just like well up every time like i've seen this movie dozens of times in my life and it gets me last night i'm watching this it's almost on cue it's like you just cue it up and i am like <laughs> so no, it's a great ending and I, I have nothing against it i just i like ambiguous endings we talked about this with yeah. another darabont mm-hmm. film we talked about the mist and i like yeah. More open-ended endings, but this one still works. Whereas, obviously, if you listen to the Mist episode, <laughs> we didn't agree. We get into that, especially I listened to your Mist episode, and I agreed that the movie ending worked mm-hmm. um, for Mist. But especially with short stories, um, these ambiguous endings—I mean, that's you don't have four hundred pages to completely bring the circle all the way around, and so you have to have a, a place you're going and a place where you kind of want to indicate, but leave some room. And the ending here definitely does that. Brooks and Red, and I mean, I don't know their exact ages when they get out, but these are much older men. And when Red goes, especially in the novella, to find out if what Andy's left for him is still there. And again, it's all the ifs. What if the rock isn't there? What if it really isn't? He didn't do it. He didn't leave the stuff for me. Like it almost makes me gut sick while I'm waiting to find out still, even though I know what the result's going to be, because it seems like the stakes are so incredibly high with this very short period of time that they might have left to do something different than they've done for the last 20, 25 years. And Brooks didn't make it right. He didn't necessarily have an Andy, but it's so high stakes to me to see what's going to happen for red. And, and in that way, it is totally about red. What is the outcome for red? And the, and the movie's other misdirect is, do you think red's going to hang himself like Brooks did? Yeah. Like that's the other misdirect. You see him, he's in the same job. He's in the same halfway house. He's having the same struggles Brooks did. It, Totally lays all of that out. And that's what I love that Darabont did with the movie that wasn't in the novella is he lays all of these stories or scenes to set up two of the biggest misdirects in the movie, which are brilliant and are not in the novella. He even goes so far as to show him at the base where Brooks hung himself and like he's getting ready to get up with the knife to carve. Yeah, he gets up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you it take he takes you that far. And then the most beautiful, like the get busy living or get busy dying is one of my favorite movie lines of all time. But you know, red ads is your goddamn right is again, I got goosebumps just even saying that. And and how he just walks away in this upright, defiant kind of like, fuck this, I am out of here with my suitcase. But it's only because of Andy. If he hadn't had Andy and he got out, if he didn't have the promise of Zawatanejo, like that is sort of the the beacon of hope that gets him out. Whatever your, like you said, whatever your Zawatanejo is, like that's the thing that gets you out. Although there's a funny joke where it's like, nobody would have remembered the name of that place. Like <laughs> Andy said this thing in a story once. And in the movie, he's even like, don't you remember the name of that town? And it's like, dude, you made this guy go to a field in Buxton, find a yeah. wall with volcanic glass, tell the mofo the name of the freaking city again. Like, <laughs> 
I've already sent him on a side quest. It's I remember like, Come when on, I man. first read that story, I didn't um, know how it was pronounced. It took me, I was looking at this word and just like, what is well, it's this? It's a very beautiful name. Like it just sounds magical. Zawatanejo. Oh, that yeah. is gorgeous. And it's, it's on the Pacific coast. The Pacific is an ocean where it has no memory. It's like, there's just all of this like, allure and shininess to it where you're like this is my redemption this is where i can start life anew because i can't go back to where i knew like you guys said it's recidivism if he went back to what he knew he'd fall right back in because the system has not set him up to be successful he has to completely go somewhere different and that's an act of will like you have to decide yeah i'm, a big I'm step. not gonna go back there i'm going to i'm going to choose my redemption and do something new the amount of courage that it takes to walk away from what you know and into something you really do not is unbelievable especially when you're someone red's age because yeah Again, I mean, if he went into prison when, you know, he was like 18, let's just say 20 years old, I think as thereabouts what he was when he went away and he was in prison for 40 years, 50. I mean, he's 60 some years old by the yeah. time he's doing this, maybe even older. It's astounding to me what that would probably take to move that needle in that direction for him to just go and leave it all behind and take that risk, take that jump. And it really does often take that one person in your life that believes in you, that sees in you something. And that's what these two had, you know, and, and we can always think about like, yeah, they probably had challenge, a lot of challenges along the way down there. What if the search for Andy is never going to let up? You know, yeah. Red will never be thought of probably like he's just an old man who broke parole. But Andy, he busted out. And here's the other thing. Uh, and I'll bring this back up, too, because in the movie, it's kind of all capped off. Right. The warden shoots himself in the head. And in the book, I and this is what I love about what Darabont did. Is he made the story bigger and darker in a lot of ways, because in the book, like the warden just gets away with it and retires and. Nah, he just kind of like goes off into the sunset. I don't even think Hadley is arrested. Doesn't he just No, he leaves. Resign? Actually, Hadley leaves like halfway through the book. He's gone. That's right. Like, you know, he's, but he resigns. It's on his own kind of, he's not hauled off anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there was a, the warden, one of the original wardens that was in there, he was running like that discount auto repair service out of yeah. the prison and mm. Hadley was part of it. And so he and the other guards that were involved just kind of like walk, you know, got away with it and just right. left. Um, and so it was very like everybody who was bad in the book kind of just got away with it or didn't face any real consequences. And we find Maybe Boggs did. I think Boggs, Boggs still yeah, got he did Boggs he got, beat within an inch of his life. He got yeah. the shit beat out of him, but um, it made it even more brutal in the movie because True. the line of like word has it, he spent the rest of his days drinking his meals through a straw. Like yeah. that was and not he never in the walks book. again. Yeah. 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 Whereas in the, in the book, he does get the shit beat out of him, That's true. but he just becomes a lesser. I don't even know that he's transferred. I think he, they just said that he was a lesser sister and eventually just faded away. Like he just wasn't even a, a known Almost quantity. Worse. Yeah. And so uh, everybody who was bad, pretty much. And Tommy also doesn't get murdered in the book. He gets mm -hmm. murdered in the movie, but beautiful reasoning behind that because you really had to show the warden as the true antagonist by that point to kill Andy's hope, it, they had to show, they had to kill Tommy to really bring that whole thing home. So 
Darabont saw every single element, that, you know, in the story. He pulled it apart almost like a like a pleated fan and just, you know, pulled all these pleats apart and just put a little more information in there. And it just made it into this full symphony and so beautiful and so perfect. And it really is something you can only do, I think, when you are intimately connected to the work. And Darabont has been a student of King's since the very beginning of his career about his dollar baby yeah the woman in the room which is another yeah. story well it's a story in night shift he made yeah. he made that story for, as a dollar baby and king just fell in love with it. it was like the best one and then yeah he goes to make um this movie and then the mist and honestly hasn't done anything well no we did green mile um and then the mist but just also a great movie yeah and honestly i don't know what's going on with darabont because when you check his imdb he has not done anything since 2013 writing directing producing really nothing since the mid-teens it's almost like he's just kind of walked away and he got um, let go from walking dead right? right yeah yeah i think that was really one After of his the, final hurrahs one of the yeah. early seasons yeah. maybe in the first season yeah, yeah it was the first Which season was the best season yeah so i don't know what's going on with darabont right now i hope he's okay i really feel like despite the you know the quibbles i had over the mist i feel like Honestly, he's one of the best ad adapters of Stephen King's work. I, I think yeah. the only other one right now going is Mike Flanagan. I mean, the short story is good, but this sits atop of the pile for a lot of reasons. And I think Darabont gets a huge amount of the credit for that. Yes. Uh, because Rob Reiner wanted to direct this movie. Rob Reiner was willing to pay somewhere between two and $3 million to direct the movie. Remember, he had done Misery and Stand By Me and so, and did great adaptations, and Darabont decided, you know what, I'm going to turn that down because I actually want to take my own hand at directing it because he adapted it to the screenplay, as you mentioned. And Reiner had very different choices for the actors. And I just I don't think it would have worked in the same way. And I think a lot of it was Darabont's decision making and picking the right people. Do you know, by chance, uh, any I of the sure choices? Do. You know, I love looking this stuff up. Yes, you do. Kevin Costner was a choice for Red. I know that. Yeah. So Reiner wanted Tom Cruise as Andy. Tom Cruise, that's right. <laughs> Sorry. And Harrison Sorry. Ford as Red. So that's who Reiner wanted, okay? I could see Harrison Ford as Red. Tom Hanks was a big choice for Andy, but he was doing Forrest Gump. You mentioned Kevin Costner. He was doing Waterworld. Charlie Sheen was willing to do it on scale. That's actor minimum wage if you don't know. Charlie Sheen was like thirsty for this role. Unfortunately, didn't get it. Johnny Depp, uh, to bring him up again, Nick Cage, Matthew Broderick, and... Actually, um, Nick Cage got his own Nick prison Cage. movie, so it's all good. <laughs> Morgan Freeman is actually the one who suggested Tim Robbins for the role of Andy. So he's the one who was like, you know what, this is who you get. Because I guess Darabont had gone around and asked, um, he got cast first, which by the way, also not the first choice, Morgan Freeman. Right. Was he not. got cast and then he's like, hey, who do you think from this list would be great? And he's like... Tim Robbins, always him, like is what he said. And obviously, well, and also Tim Robbins was perfect because at that point in his career, he was doing some very odd movies like The Hudsucker Proxy and mm -hmm. uh, all these other kind of like a weird movie, very weird movies. Like, yeah. and, and, and so it really fit. Like, Robbins has always been this very enigmatic actor, not in playing this enigmatic character. So it, it, it really worked. Was he doing like the Robert Altman? kind of stuff at that time yes yes yeah he, oh yeah the player yeah. um oh my god great movie 
fantastic movie. But he is one of those guys that just very quirky. Um, yeah. Just a few other fun ones. Warden Norton, we could have gotten James Cromwell. That would have worked. I mean, it would have been okay. I love Bob Gunton, who they ended up picking for the warden. He's honestly amazing. I think this is one, though, where Cromwell, he can play. I mean, like, um, what's the one? Um, the big cop movie where he's like the police chief. LA Confidential. Yes. yes. He yes. plays a great asshole in Hard that case. movie. Yeah. Hard case, yeah. The prison in which this movie is set, Mansfield Prison, in uh in mansfield ohio um is now most of it's closed you can still go obviously and visit the the main um cell block and an administrative building and it's a great haunted attraction every october um i went to it a couple years ago it is absolutely worth every penny uh to go to this thing and be in that building and um i've been in those cell blocks and i've been pulled into those prison cells i mean you can look up and just see every aspect of it and the building just feels like it's haunted um there's a whole shawshank tour you can go on the building is a character in the story and that building was falling apart when they went to be demolished it was set to be demolished yeah and when they set up shop in that thing it was there was a lot of work they had to do to make it even safe to be in to be able to shoot the building it's beautiful in its own way like all of the columns and open spaces yeah yeah and the all the brickwork all the stone and masonry um was closed though due to a lot of human rights violations that happened within those walls those walls have held a lot of pain and a lot of brutality and so to set this movie there it kind of has that same veracity as session nine which was filmed in the danvers state institution in massachusetts and so when you set a movie in a place like this it really adds to it and of course you end up with like this amazing helicopter shot over the main with the thomas newman score just playing like as they're introducing the prison and over the prison yard, over this big sprawling building, over the yard, and it just the wire, and you know you're in it. Like it, they could not have made this movie on a soundstage. They just. What do you think? I mean, obviously, there's the Green Mile as well that we've talked about. What do you think King's fascination with sort of these prison stories is? Why is why does he set several stories in here? This is what I saw. Correct me if I'm wrong, Allison, but that. He said that it was the culmination of all his memories from watching prison movies when he was a child. I could believe that. That's what that. I saw. Interesting. That that makes a lot of sense. And and why prison stories in general, right? Because I mean, a big movie for me in my formative uh, years was Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, prison break movies of all time, and just just a great movie in general. Highly recommend that one. But and Papillon with uh, Steve McQueen. That's another oh. another great one. I, I'm kind of a naked gun, two and a half guy myself. <laughs> Best but prison break scene ever. What is a prison movie if not like a? you already have a, a set that is a built, uh, it's a built in pressure cooker. Yeah, it's a closed room for sure. Sorry, correction. I think it was 33 and a third. Sorry, it's had to set the record straight on the Naked Gun trilogy. Thank you so much. I mean, you know, <laughs> you got to get those right, Chris. got to get it right. Nicole Kidman, or no, Anna Nicole Smith was in it. Come We're on. We're all about the facts here on Ding Dong Dark this time. But no, I mean, I, I feel like, too, when you're dealing with someone who writes like King, who is all about his, his characters, it, it also gives you that opportunity to create very complex and difficult characters because in this pressure cooker are people who are, let's face it, not good guys. Um, and so you have to make them likable in a way that makes you want 
to root for them or at least to get through the story, even if they are not good guys. Real quick, can I tell a funny Stephen King story? Yes. Okay. So he was saying that he went to a supermarket and this old woman comes up to him and she says, I know who you are. You're that horror writer. I don't read anything you do, but I respect your right to do it. I just like things more genuine, like that Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> and he's like, I wrote that. And she said, no, you didn't. And walked off and went on her way. Didn't, Kate, didn't you mention <laughs> that like in last week too? Like, I think there yeah, was something about well that. as Chris just did. Like That is part of an article too that I read with that quote. And that to me is just illustrates the, the quandary of King because yeah. again, you know, people think, oh, you know, horror guy. Yeah. Um, and I love what King says here. He, um, he says, I'm not interested in horror per se. I'm interested in what people do. What I would like for readers to feel when they read one of my books is I would like for you to fall in love with the characters and want the best in the world for them. In other words, yes, I'm a horror writer. I won't disagree with that, but I really, what I really want to do is engage your positive emotions as much as I can. So when terrible things happen, you don't want to see someone's head come off. And that to me is the essence of good horror or good writing sure. in general, yeah. but yeah. Um, you need to build the relationship with the character, whether that is one of love or loathing, you need to have that emotional connection to them. I've brought up the story Needful Things a couple times because I do feel like that is a massive yeah. book that King has this brilliant ability that so few authors have, and I certainly do not have this ability, is to create a vast cast of characters. He makes the whole damn town a character and everyone in it, and he can jump from person to person to person and have these distinct voices and distinct personalities. And for every one of them, and some of them are the worst people you've ever encountered in your life and some yeah, of the best but you know them you always know them and that's why you know like needful things is so great because it appeals to the base nature of everybody and even the good people have ugly greed and wants that are exploited and in a way that is so human and it makes you look at yourself and go oh my god i feel like someone's seeing like my ugliest thoughts and kind of pulling them out yeah of me. <laughs> And I think like in my years of reading King, that's probably the thing that has scared me the most is sometimes he'll say something that's so right on and picks right up the ugliness that people have and, and treat one another with that actually, I think is the scariest thread that for me, that has always run through his stuff. And it's also the most fascinating. I cannot look away from it. I have to, when he is doing it, I have to engage in it. Because it is so fascinating to be like, oh, everybody's that way. I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse. Well, it's like the whole like everybody poops thing, right? Yeah. It, it, it really is <laughs> like even your hero has the that unsavory side because we all do. And And what this story does too, I love the subversion. Because when you think about how popular and beloved this story is, when you talk about a story that is number one on IMDb running for many years and that has uh, become legendary uh, among the culture. Even and, the lady in the grocery store loves it. Exactly. And what it's about is sympathizing with people in a place that society in general 
wants to throw people in and forget about them. And they are perfectly fine. If you are in any true crime discussion, whether it's Reddit or Facebook or Twitter, they want nothing more than for these people to not only be thrown away, they want them to be raped. They want them to be assaulted. Prison rape jokes are among the most accepted form of low humor ever. And it's horrific because what that does is it says so much more about you than it does about the person you're saying it about. And then what they do is when you say something about that, they go, oh, so you sympathizing with somebody who murdered a kid yeah. or child molesters yeah. or, you know, whatever. And it's like, I don't need prison to be where the punishment happens. Prison is the punishment. It is you have deprived this person of their liberty as a punishment for their crime. That's the punishment, not to be sent to a place to be beaten, starved, raped, assaulted, humiliated. That is not what we are supposed to send people to prison for. And we have far too many people in this fucking country. I'm sorry, I'm ranting now. No, I've you're, gotten no, rant right. That are more than willing to dehumanize people further. And they also do not think about the fact that the people that are in those prisons that are part of that system have been a part of that system for a fucking reason. In a lot of cases, they come from places that are bred where crime is born and bred. They never had a chance. And that is not to say I'm excusing what they did, but it mm -hmm. does explain where they came from and what they did. And this story, the fact that people love it so much, it's like, do you know right now that you- are sympathizing right now? Yes. Like, <laughs> please look at that. Look at this story yeah. and then look at how you talk about an inmate and how you want to forget about the millions and millions of people we throw behind bars every year in this country, more than any country in the world, the most incarcerated population in the world. And we don't give a shit about any of them and about fixing any of it. Okay. Whew. Slash rant. <laughs> that reminds me when you were talking about um, when you toured prisons with Bart, your professor, who we both know, um, it comes down to, and I meant to say it at that time, do you believe there's kind of two philosophies about incarceration, right? It's, it's, it's retribution or it's rehabilitation and this country, by and large, buys into retribution. And we need to own up to that. Well, we And we do it. This is going to be my rant. We do it entirely inconsistently. We do it inconsistently based on class, race, gender, geography, ethnicity, education, access, all of those things leading to access to defense. Um, all of those things are just wildly inconsistent. I almost don't know if we can do the thing without figuring out how to do it consistently first. You can't even talk about a crime or a criminal or a convict or a killer or any kind of criminal online in a in a even remotely sympathetic way without yeah. being painted as a bleeding heart liberal who's soft on crime. And it's like, right. you know what? We are all part of the system that creates this thing. Uh, these problems. And unless we want to face them head on and address them, I mean, this story to me, and this is why it means so much to me is because I think it forces people without even thinking about it to have these sympathies. And I really hope that people can examine why. And some people will be like, oh, it's just a story, you know, like it's not real life. Like these prisoners are made lovable and whatever. And it's like, no, they're made human. 
is what they are because their misdeeds are being hidden. Might I add to, I, um, when asked what the movie means to people or what the theme is, Darabont had said in an interview, I think with Charlie Rose, that it's kind of a Rorschach and that everyone sees it differently. So he's like, I can't really tell you what the theme or the, the point of the movie is because everyone walks up to him on the street or to Morgan or to Tim. And they're like, I love this movie for this reason, because, and he's like, it's always just humbling and amazing what people say. And so the beauty of this movie is it's not like the theme is just one thing. There's a lot of stuff you can attach to it. And I think to your point, it's like, Part of it is maybe we need to think more about why it matters to us. What is that connection piece and and what are the consistencies there? And, you know, maybe it forces people to think what's that quote, like a measure of society or a culture is how well you treat your most vulnerable Mm -hmm. people in your society. And, and, you know, I, I think this is kind of a window into that. And sure, these are painted as very nice guys, even though we know they've done crimes with the exception of a few bad eggs, like everyone in that gang is like a nice guy, even though they did a crime. But nevertheless, I think the point is it kind of shows the humanity. You don't lose it when you go in there, even though we do send people into this dehumanizing place. Yeah. And the great thing about Andy Dufresne's characters, somehow he has that firewall. He doesn't let that come in. And to the extent that he lifts up red in a way that Red never even anticipated. And I know you all were talking about like the the Christian allegory. You can look at this from a very agnostic viewpoint as well, which is to say, Kate, you asked earlier, why did Andy do all this stuff? And part of it is to feel alive, to feel like he had some matter and some existence, even if he was doing a, a crime in some of these cases, I think he did it with the end goal in mind. Like it was sort of a long con on his part. I don't think he just did the defrauding to do it, but I feel like, yeah, you can look at all of the the movie elements that are about their Christian allegory. It's all there. But to me, it's also just the fact of like, from a completely just non-religious viewpoint, it's finding a way to make it through. And if you're in the prison in the real world is to not be in prison in your mind. And I think that's yeah, kind of where- to have some purpose to feel of use. To maintain your humanity. And isn't that kind of the beauty of it? Like if we really talk about the Christian allegory and how it mimics just general humanism, secular humanism, and how there is a bridge to be united there and how hard that how how much harder that's gotten in a lot of ways. And it's like, we have the same goals here, guys. It's like, we just choose to not always believe in the deity. You know, if anybody says something like, what makes you be a good person if you don't believe in God, or you're not afraid to go to hell, or, you know, what keeps you on the straight and narrow? And it's like, because that's human nature. Like there's you think I don't have a moral code. (laughs) Like a moral code is not dependent on your belief in a God. If anything, the God just might help reinforce it for you. But that was already there. You're taught that through a series of events as you're growing up, hopefully in the right environment that teaches you that bad behavior does not get you reward. Therefore, reward uh, come from good place. I mean, you could really simplify it down to something very simple as behavioral psychology. But um, the the aspect of like, I don't want to kill people because, well, that would feel really bad and I don't want to be killed. So why would I kill someone? Uh, it's just as simple as that, guys. It isn't like Jesus tells me it's bad, so I don't kill. Like, that, that's not why. It's very basic humanism, very basic humanity. When I was in law school, I had a, he was my torts professor and torts is personal injury. So 
he also happened to have been before he became a lawyer and a professor, a guard at San Quentin. Oh, wow. Um, And I wish he had taught criminal law, but he taught torts. And his great story that he told us, he was like, before any of you think that you are better than any one of the people that was incarcerated at San Quentin, let me tell you, you are not. It is one step or one collection of generational, you know, experience away from being in the exact same position. And he was like, and when you were a guard, you better treat, you better have treated people well because the upper floor would just collect stuff in their pee pockets and dump them on the guards. It's just like a very visceral way of don't be thinking that you are any better or different. I am so, so glad that you brought that up, Kate, because that's another thing Bart and I, as we've been sort of planning this this season of, of prison that we hope to do, is talking about how very, and he said almost that exact thing verbatim, is that we are all so very close. We are one action away from being that person behind those bars and it it doesn't necessarily have to be from something you directly did as andy dufresne demonstrates and so many people who are incarcerated for one bad decision that one too many drink that you took uh that that one stupid little action that you didn't think was meaningful is the butterfly flapping its wings. And once you were in that system, you were changed in the eyes of society. Good luck getting outside that again. Like I said, I yearned for a career in forensic psychology for a very long time. And and when I lost career. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that is the probably the reason like I just didn't want to go and finish school. So I, uh, I became a writer and now I'm doing a podcast and I'm just a enthusiast is what I am. I'm not an expert and I'm not a doctor and I never will be, but visiting those prisons with Bart and then uh, reading this book as a teenager, when I was at the very threshold of just trying to figure out life, I was 15, 16 years old. That was really the age where I finally rejected the religion I was raised with. And let go of the fear of that um, and figuring out my values and all that. Um, But it ended up becoming, I think, one of the most important touchstones of my value system in my life is this story. And, and this is why I tell people that if you really want to know who I am at my core, you need to read this book and you need to watch this movie. This is, this is who I am right here. This is it. This is me. And there are very few stories that have, done that for me personally. And I feel like it's done that for a lot of people. And that's why it's such an important story for so many people. So I mean, I would say just to reiterate my feeling about it in general is I've sat in the the Denver district court in the Denver district criminal court, and I've watched people do their first appearances. And it's a distinct difference based on access. And, you know, my, I have my education, but Others don't, you know, it doesn't, it's not an inherently meaningful thing. It just means that I can spot how lacking in access some people are, um, the language that's used, the, the written language that's used, the speed with which things happen Mm -hmm. that can land you in a place that someone else just wouldn't. 
I know we're getting into a lot of societal things and we're kind of moving away from this story, but it, this is just such an important thing. And anybody's listening to this right now, I think if, if you love the Shawshank Redemption, you love it for a reason. And I feel like it's probably because it speaks to something that we're touching on all of us. This whole thing is not perhaps like the darkest in terms of like creepy, scary. There's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of sadness. At the same time, a lot of hope and a lot of, you know, redemption. And as Chris and I have talked about a million times, it's, you know, we'll go in trying to talk about something dark, but then we end up kind of exposing it in some way and, and showing it's not as dark. But I feel like you can't really examine darkness without the light. And so that's why this show exists. It's- Which, by the way, the episode that you did about the dance craze, <laughs> yeah. just dance themselves, that was dark. Yeah. Like, oh, that yeah. freaked me out. <laughs> no, choreomania, <laughs> man. You got to love it. I mean, I guess it's light and fun to dance, but man, that, that got dark, like days and weeks of dancing themselves to death. That was crazy. You know, that's the premise for the movie Footloose, why they can't dance in that town, right? <laughs> True story. It makes you that's crazy. it. That's why they ban dancing. That's why they ban dancing, everybody. Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Does anybody have anything else to add before we wrap this baby up? Because I, I know we've chatted for a bit. Do we need to tell the listeners who was also considered for some of the other roles, or are we just going to leave them hanging? No, no, no. Okay, oh, no, do it, do it. All right, Chris, yeah. do it, do it. And on a little bit of a palate cleanser. So, Red, Gene Hackman, Robert Duvall, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, which would have been great. Red, Redford. Clint Eastwood. Uh, but Darabont said he wanted somebody who had the like gravitas of the narration because yeah. the narration is such an important part of the story. He actually considered Sidney Poitier who uh, passed on it. He said he didn't want to be basically represented as a prisoner, which I get like for representation reasons. I totally understand. And let's see, who else did we not cover? Uh, for Tommy, Brad Pitt. Mm. But he mm-hmm. got the lead role for Interview with a Vampire. So he's like, Deuces. okay, that was a good choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. James Gandolfini as Boggs. That's interesting. That's <laughs> no, very interesting. I can't see that at all. Uh, that's a no. I think um, uh, I can't remember the actor's name. All of a sudden, he's just a great character actor. Mark Rolston. Yeah, such a wonderful character actor. Mark Rolston, aka Space Marine, yep. in the movie Aliens. <laughs> yeah, he's wonderful, and I think I loved with him. He's tough, but he has that little bit of a kind of the feminine, but threatening feminine edge right, right, right. to him. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was perfect. I I yeah, I don't think Gandolfini could pull that off. Like it just, yeah. He's too brute. He's too much of a brute. He's, he's rooster. He's not, he's not boss. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. He could have, yeah, he could have been the warden. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We We talked about most of them. I had to make sure our listeners got that last bit of. Not that you can't go look this up, but you know. If you're coming here for the full treatment of both the story of the movie, plus the light in the dark, also, you know, the criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex. I mean, we're going to talk about it all. We're covering every single base. And I did warn people that I would get a little controversial in this yeah. episode. Also a deep dive into the problems of our justice system. Yes. And as a philosopher once said, Florence, it's always darkest before the dawn. Oh, you know, it's funny. I was actually... Just listening to a, the new Florence and the Machine album that just came out, and oh. there's a song on it called Choreomania, which is pretty oh, fantastic. No kidding. Yeah, really? yeah. Highly recommend wow. that album. I need album. to listen to it. It's great. So that 
pretty much concludes our exploration of the Shawshank Redemption and uh, really different seasons. I'm so glad to have had the three of us cover these two stories, uh, both The Body. Please go and listen to that if you haven't. And if you're not listening to the show in perfect chronological order, like I do with every podcast I love, then I don't know what to tell you. But go back and listen to it if you're just one of those people that weirdly roll the dice. Weirdly, some of us are nonlinear, madam. How listen, do you cast I am I am a shamefully linear individual. I, I am not <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> but what's funny, Allison, is our discussions are always so like all over the map. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you say you're such a linear person because our discussions are always like, wait, how do we get seven, seven, you know, points removed from where we were? Oh yeah. That's just how we kind of went. This was like the danger funny. of me even doing a podcast because we've always been this way. When Chris and I get on the phone to chat about something, yeah. like, we're going to talk real quick at four hours later. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're still talking, but I, I feel like that's sometimes how we get at the ideas. When I verbalize, I tend to go a little, I'm, I'm more like a shotgun than I am a rifle. Yeah. So when I am writing and trying to really keep my thoughts organized, that's when I do the linear because my tendency to verbally spray everywhere is, exists inside my brain very much so. But if I'm going to accomplish anything, I have to go A to B, B to C, C to D. Otherwise, it doesn't get done. That's just a little insight into the machinations of my messed up head. And if you want more of those machinations inside my messed up head, uh, hop on over to season one, check out all our discussions there, listen to the rest of these, and please stick Learn about around. choreomania, learn about yes. mass hysteria and dance. Learn about the Devil's Interval, learn about yeah. Lucifer at the Denver airport. Shout out to Denver. Oh, we where love Kate... Lucifer here in Denver. Yeah, he exactly. Gorgeous. He is love a legend, him. an absolute awesome. legend. I the love Young Young Hotel, the terror terrifying hotel oh my god yeah yeah Yeah. there's so many good things and coming up season three is going to be cults you guys nice oh you're dropping it now i'm dropping it now i'm gonna i'm testing to see who's listening if you are listening right now then you're getting that information a little early we're not even quite done with this season yet we got a few more episodes of king to go but i'm dropping it now because do it all right i reward people who pay attention But if you love what you're hearing, uh, feel free to go over to Apple and give me a review on Apple Podcasts and, you know, send me some hate mail. You can also rate on Spotify now. So if you, oh, you can yeah. give, a little, give a little rating on Spotify too. And, and while you're rating me, go over and rate Chris and Ben on 80s High. It is a fantastic show. I promote it all the time for a good reason. I would not have Chris on the show if I didn't love the work that he did. And obviously, Chris wouldn't be my best friend if I didn't love the work that he did, because he's just that kind of guy. He's just a really smart and awesome guy. I'm actually defrauding Allison. And so I'm keeping her in check. She's she has to say that. Otherwise, we're going <laughs> to. I'm still waiting it's for a the prisoner's check to dilemma. Clear. We'll both go to jail if you reveal what, right? uh, the arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate, now you are just doing such amazing work in the legal realm and, and you're just such a dear friend and you are just kicking ass and taking names. Do you want people to find you on social media? You're not a lot on there, though. I mean, you're like an enigma yourself. So. I'm like, yeah, I'm like moderately on social media. But I would say we talked about a lot of different documentaries and podcasts and Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. some books. And you mentioned Bart and he's got some stuff out there. Maybe in the show notes, you could put 
um, some of those links or names because a lot of that stuff, if people want to check out, if they're interested in the social justice aspect of it, or if they're interested in just um, some of the other entertainment stuff, that would be cool. I want you back for more episodes. We want you back. Yeah, Chris and I it. have agreed. We've agreed that you're coming back. So you're or coming back. I can scam <laughs> you too. So you have to be in more episodes. How about that? I'm running a whole little crime ring here. Oh, see. <laughs> How will you take us in on that? <laughs> this is Chris's attempt at being a multi-level marketing guy. That's right. Speaking <laughs> of cults, that's right. All right, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back for next week. In the meantime, sayonara. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, hope springs eternal. See you in Zwatanejo. Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding-dongs.